The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, it is an honor to welcome my guest, Dr. Martha Herbert. Dr. Herbert is a pediatric neurologist and a brain development researcher. Her main focus is autism, and she is the author of The Autism Revolution, Whole Body Strategies for Making Life All It Can Be. She has come to the conclusion that autism may be most comprehensively understood and helped through an inclusive whole body systems approach where genes and environment are understood to interplay. And Dr. Herbert comes to us from Harvard University. Welcome, Dr. Herbert. Well, thank you so much for having me. I was disappointed that I missed a talk that you gave in Minneapolis at the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy, and that talk focused on diet, environment, and autism. And you were so kind when I contacted you, I I thought, well, at least I can have you on the radio program and you can share your wisdom with a wider audience. But I guess we should start simply with the question of what is autism? You know, it's an excellent question. I could give you the pat answer that autism is a disorder that involves social interaction and communication and repetitive behaviors and so forth and sensory issues. But really, what I like to ask people is to adopt a beginner's mind about autism because we're learning lots of things that uh, make us have fresh thoughts. So I like to think about autism as something that the brain does when the whole body has different settings. Mm -hmm. And we used to think of it as a genetic brain defect. And from the articles I've read of yours, you see it as a more complex and challenging condition that involves chronic inflammation and gut-brain connections and even inflammation. You know, really, people have been so focused on genetics, and then it's gone to gene-environment interaction. But still, the genetics has to be in there. But I think that it makes sense to try and think about it as physiology. What's going on at the cellular level? And the more genetic challenges you have, the bigger physiology problem you have, But the more environmental challenges you have, the less you're going to need a genetic problem. Mm -hmm. You may not need any genetic problem to have these kinds of physiological issues. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm very curious about the rates. So I'm in my 50s, and when I was pregnant with my children, I worried about the, the thing that most pregnant women worried about then, and that was having a baby with Down syndrome. We didn't even talk about autism, but now if you talk to young women, they have another concern about having children with this kind of set of challenges. And I wonder, what do you think has changed in our environment over the past couple of decades that would have led to this increase? We've had so many things change. Some of them are for the better, 
In other words, the Cuyahoga River is not catching on fire anymore. So some of the really gross examples of environmental pollution, at least in this country, aren't as bad. Whereas other things are getting worse, we have other, we have novel forms of pollution, we have fracking, we have nanoparticles, we have all kinds of, we have genetically modified food, we have electromagnetic frequencies, we have all kinds of stress. And all of these have a common impact because they challenge our cells to react to things that they weren't evolved to react to in this intensity. Mm-hmm. I was recently having a conversation with a pediatric endocrinologist, and he said, oh, no, most of the increase in autism that we see is really just the result of better diagnostics. And I've, I've read in several of your papers that the better diagnostics really can't explain the sharp increase in incidence. Well, I like to think of it as a both-and, not an either-or. It isn't either observation or real increase. Definitely there are people we didn't pick up before, older people whom nobody could have thought to label as autism spectrum. But people like Peter Bierman and Irva Hertz-Picciotto have carefully analyzed the numbers, and they found that you can explain away a fair amount of the increase, but not, by no means all of it. For Peter Bierman, it was around half that you couldn't explain away like that. And for Dr. Picciotto, it was about two-thirds. So basically, certainly when we're having more and more people, we're going to be more and more aware, and we're going to be better observers. But there's also a real increase going on. Now, is the increase just in the United States, or are we seeing it globally? It appears to be going on globally. It isn't as if people doing studies of incidence and prevalence are all doing them the same way. So it's not like we can have a super confident, precise picture of this. But yes, it's certainly a problem outside of the United States, too. So somewhere along the line, we are being exposed to something in our environments globally that's resulting in a change in our physiology. But it's not a fixed change, is it? And I I thought that some of your research and some of the publications that you have have been quite hopeful in that by changing our environment and fixing some of the things that we can fix, we've seen drastic improvements with these children. We certainly have. I'd be careful with my language. I wouldn't say something in our environment because that's a singular term. Mm -hmm. It's really an accumulation of things. I mean, because if you look, one of the core physical things that is a problem is there's something called glutathione. And once you know about it, you get really interested in it. But many people don't know very much about it. But it can be, the active form can be depleted by thousands of different kinds of exposures. So you can have a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but the impact on the glutathione can add up to a lot. On the other hand, you can help replenish glutathione, which is the body's most potent antioxidant and most potent detoxifying chemical, through nutrition and also by avoiding exposures that you you know, that you have some control over. So, and and when you do that, and when glutathione builds up again, a lot of repair 
processes start to occur spontaneously. Now, where do we find glutathione in the body? Well, glutathione is made in the liver from three amino acids, glutamine, cysteine, and uh, glycine. But we find it, it's the most abundant antioxidant in the brain, and it's really in just about every cell of the body. Mm-hmm. And if you just take glutathione by mouth, unless it's specially formulated, you're not going to absorb it because you'll break it down in your gut. Mm-hmm. People replenish it through NAC and acetylcysteine, but even there, a lot of the forms of it you buy over the counter in jars have already deteriorated. And some of the forms that you can buy are individually wrapped so they last better. You can get cysteine in meat, a variety of other things. So it's possible to get it. And many people in the population have gene mutations that make it somewhat harder for them to keep up with replenishing it. And those are more common in autism and in people and families of people with autism. Mm. So if we wanted to replete and do the best we possibly could to get more glutathione active in our bodies, what would you recommend? Well, I would recommend a healthy, balanced diet. I'd also recommend folate, methyl, cobalamin, methyl B12, having a lot of different colored Vegetables. I love the idea of a rainbow diet because a rainbow diet is a way for a person who doesn't know that much about nutrition to go to the grocery store and try to pick out vegetables that have, that represent the different colors of the rainbow. And in those colors are what we call phytonutrients that support a lot of different chemical processes that help the body to be robust in the face of environmental challenges. I really appreciate your correcting me with regard to trying to single out one thing that might have changed. And I I use an article, I, I refer to this article frequently. One of the key authors is Philip Landrigan, and he looked at a research strategy to discover the environmental causes of autism and neurodevelopmental disabilities, and he listed 10 things. So just to give our listeners an idea, there are things like lead and mercury and two different kinds of pesticides, endocrine disruptors, automotive exhaust, and the list goes on. So thank you for clarifying that, that it's this, I like to call it this stew of environmental toxins in which we all bathe. Let me ask you another question about diet. One of the recorded interviews that I heard, you had mentioned the importance of choosing an organic diet when we can because that exposes both perhaps pregnant women, women of childbearing years, and children to less pesticides, which could be problematic. It's hard for parents to often find that healthy, balanced, whole food diet in our society. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. You know, first of all, I think people need to be gentle with themselves because this is uh, food preferences and food habits and food skills are really primordial. They're, they're, they come with growing up in our families. And patients of mine, sometimes I'll say to a, a family, you need to change your diet. And they'll say, sure, tell me what to do. And other times they'll look at me like a deer in headlights mm-hmm. because they've never really thought about actively changing things that they do or else maybe they never even cooked. So... You know, you have to do the best you can and see it as a process over time. 
that you're going to learn this, you know, you're going to learn step by step things that you can do better and better. And don't either feel like it's, feel like it's all or nothing, but build toward doing more and more. Make it a learning process. Involve your whole family in getting interested. Even a child with autism who refuses to eat a vast array of foods might begin to get interested in going to the store and picking out the different colors of vegetables, even if it takes a while for them to eat this. And so I think that that's the way to do it. You know, we have to be gentle with ourselves. We didn't, you know, we grew up, most of us, in this, many of us anyway, grew up in in a situation where we were eating processed foods our whole lives. I personally didn't grow up that way because half my family came from a rural agricultural place in another country. And some there's there's plenty of people like that, although less and less. Mm-hmm. But it just takes time to learn. Well, there are many dietary therapies that are being used to help children deal with their pain and some of the behavioral challenges. Do you find that some are work more effectively than others? Can I rephrase that and offer some common principles from yes. a few of them? Of course. So so one thing is, if I were going to say the single most important thing, it's try to eliminate sugar from the diet. Sugar is toxic. There's a lot of books about that. There's a book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, that recently came out that's particularly good. It does a lot of things that are not good for you, and in one of, in one of the critical things is it feeds gut bugs, organisms in our intestines that are bad for us. Simple starchy foods, processed starches, are also a problem. So a number of the diets, particularly things like the specific carbohydrate diet and the GAPS diet, They go beyond the gluten-free, casein-free diet. Gluten-free just eliminates gluten but says you can have cornstarch or other sorts of starches, potato starch to make up for it, rice. Some people find that just getting rid of those starches for a good while really helps somebody get over the hump of a lot of their problems. So taking care of your gut bugs is a really, really important thing. So that's one thing. Getting really healthy fats is another thing. Uh, so avoiding trans fats, avoiding processed foods where the fats have been degraded and are not the kinds of things that really feed our cell membranes in our bodies and in our brains. So those are two things that I think are really important, as well as the multicolored rainbow diet and, and lots of healthy greens which feed the, cell, the delicate cellular processes. I could go on, but that's a good start. I just want to remind our listeners that we are speaking with Dr. Martha Herbert. She is the author of The Autism Revolution, Whole Body Strategies for Making Life All It Can Be. She is a pediatric neurologist and a brain development researcher based at Harvard University. Dr. Herbert, I wonder, I recently heard a researcher speak from the Monell Chemical Sensory Center in Philadelphia, and she was describing sugar as an analgesic and how children have a much higher tolerance for it. They really like sweet foods. And that it's almost a, um, it was a, a cue for us developmentally that, that sweet foods tended to be safe, bitter ones tended to be toxic. But when we're talking about taking sugar 
or these simple carbohydrates out of the diet. I have two questions. One is, where do we get our energy from then? Simple energy if we're restricting carbohydrates so much, and is there a, a simple, is there a, a basic amount that you want to make sure your patients get? And what about the analgesic properties of sugar? Well, energy, I mean, you're a registered dietitian more than, I mean, I haven't been trained in measuring out quantities as much as you have. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there are different ways that your your body can get energy. You can get it from carbohydrates. You can also get it from fat. And an extreme version of that is the ketogenic diet, which has been used in epilepsy, not so much in autism, although some people have used it. So there's a lot of variety in how people can get their energy. And what was your other question? The analgesic properties of sugar I find to be very an interesting avenue of research where the sugar is almost a comfort. It is seen as a comfort, or children can withstand. There was some research done where children had their hands in cold water and they were able to withstand the cold temperature longer if they had a sweet food in their mouth. That's really interesting. I actually don't know that much about that, though I can think of some pathological reasons why that might occur, at least in some cases, having to do with certain sorts of gut bacteria could produce alcohols from sugar that would just make you kind of almost drunk or, you know, similarly to there's a theory about the gluten and the casein that people with various problems in their gut, maybe gut bugs, can't completely break it down and they end up having these partial breakdown products, casomorphin and glutamorphin, that act like opiates and get you stoned. So that's not the only reason for this sort of thing. But when your gut system starts getting messed up and when the gut bugs start having an aberrant ecology, mm-hmm. you can have all kinds of crazy reactions. I recently learned that in some recent study has shown that the cycling in bipolar disease has been associated with the cycling of different kinds of gut bugs. Mm. So, you know, I think that if we wait five years, we're going to have all kinds of information that right now most people wouldn't even imagine about why these things are problems. Right. Well, my concern with the carbohydrate and even with the ketogenic diet is just that there wouldn't be enough. We have to make sure that, that people get enough carbohydrate. They can get energy from fat, but it's it's the energy from carbohydrate that I want to make sure they're still getting enough of. Well, the only, I mean, if someone's on the ketogenic diet, that really doesn't apply because you could really hurt them with that. Right. But if they're not on the ketogenic diet, then they really need to get a certain amount of carbohydrate. But I really leave that to you as a dietitian okay. to lay out the quantitative parts of that. And, of course, that varies from patient to patient. Well, let's Absolutely. move on to this idea of the the microbiological environment within the yeah. gut. And are there certain probiotic formulations that you think are especially helpful? You know, a few years ago, if you asked some of my GI colleagues, they were on a hunt for which specific organism would be associated with which specific disease. And a couple of weeks ago, I was sitting around with some of these people and they've gotten converted to the ecosystem model, that it isn't any one organism, it's the whole ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And I have been mentored by ecologists, so I already for quite some time had a bias toward a more complex support of the gut. Um, I like more more 
uh, formulations that have more organisms in them. Mm-hmm. I also think, I mean, I really like uh, the body ecology diet because it teaches you how to ferment foods so that you have a much richer range, or at least potentially so, of organisms that your body takes in. And another thing is that it seems evolutionarily that it may be that you don't only need the organisms, but you need some of the proteins and other substances that these organisms produce because they help them, so to speak, take and stay there. So complex probiotics are probably better in my hunch, and getting it from from cultured foods is good too. But honestly, this is growing, this whole field. The company Prothera puts out a very interesting and Claire, um, K-L-A-I-R-E, puts out a very nice newsletter with reviewing science about this. And there are other companies too, but this, this is something to keep your eye on. And, uh, as time goes on, we're going to have so many more studies because more and more laboratories are getting information, are getting tools, cutting edge omics tubes, tools that are allowing them to study this in ways that five years ago nobody could have even imagined. Or they could have imagined, but they couldn't have pulled it off. Well, I thought it was interesting that one of the, I don't know if I should use the words risk factor, but children who had received a lot of antibiotics during their childhood, of course that's going to change the gut flora, that they might be at greater risk for developing some of these behavioral problems. Yep, and also even mothers who had a lot of antibiotics because if you're vaginally delivered, your first gulp of organisms to populate your gut comes from your mother. And your mother may have gut flora problems too. And, you know, we say that autism is heritable, but actually some of it may be because the gut bugs are passed between people in the family, from mother to child and between household members. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. There's so much we don't know. Yep. Uh, it's, it's exciting, and I'm so glad you're doing the research here because and one of your presentations, and I should let our listeners know that your, your website is rich with many resources and wonderful presentations that we can sit down and go through. And it was really the pictures that you had of children who were suffering that spoke the loudest to me because those were stories. Those were images that told stories of children in pain. And when you see those pictures, I think it makes me feel even more driven to find out what's going on and how we can backpedal and make our environment safer for our children. One of the great handouts that you have on your website is 10 Tips for Helping Your Loved One with Autism. And I wonder if you want to pick out some of those that you feel are most helpful to families. Well, sure. Uh, these are on the home page of www.autismrevolution.org in a color uh, sheet that you can print out, which is the summary of my book, very short summary, and I think you should still read the book to really get an understanding of what it's about. But the first thing is don't try and fix your child to be normal. Go for the extraordinary because people with autism can be absolutely brilliant but they can be very different than typical people, and they can have things to offer that if they were just quote-unquote normal, it wouldn't happen. So that's a really important thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, repair your cells and your cell cycles. 
we need healthy cells, so that's where the nutrition comes in, and get the gut and immune systems on your side. One of the most unique things about my book, The Autism Revolution, is the way in which I build up to show what the body problems are. And then I explain how they affect the cells in the brain and how those cells fall behind and start to get really irritated and having a hard time doing their job. And once you understand that, you can really appreciate why people with autism have sensory issues and, and are so irritated by senses and are don't sleep so well and, and are more likely to have seizures and abnormal electrical activity in the brain and how things in the environment that wouldn't bother neurotypicals can really irritate. And then when you think about what you can do for a person's health to improve it with nutrition in particular, that can start to heal the health of the brain. And a lot of these symptoms can get significantly milder or even go away when you take care of the nutrition. So what I try to do in the autism revolution is to empower parents to understand the basis of a whole body strategy for making life all it can be, and that's the subtitle of the book. Yeah, and I think that's a really kind approach. And I also want to mention that some of the dietary changes take time to express themselves. So not only is it difficult to change our diets, especially in our fast-paced society, but we shouldn't expect a change overnight and that many of the changes take, I, I saw in one of, your, one of your reports, six months maybe. You know, let me say the reason for that. It's because some changes will immediately change the chemical milieu or environment of brain cells, but other things require ongoing rebuilding like you have to rebuild your cellular membranes from unhealthy fats to healthy fats. That takes months. And if not, and these changes can co go on for years. It's a complex process. People need to understand that you get some gains right away, but the more you persist and the more comprehensive you are, the more gains you're going to have. And I also recommend behavioral and other kinds of therapies, but the whole body complete multifaceted approach is the, is the best thing. We just have a minute. Would you like to leave our listeners with, with one last message? Sure. Really, go for broke. Learn everything you can. Help your child. Be gentle with yourselves. And, you know, then go out and teach others as well. You can join TACA or other groups with parent-to-parent -parent mentoring. Um, share your data and join the autism revolution. We have a lot to do to have healthier babies and healthier families mm -hmm. going forward. We have, we have a big problem in our planet, and solving the autism revolution will help everybody because it's really for all of us. Well, I want to thank you so much, Dr. Herbert, for sharing your insights on autism. We've been speaking with Dr. Martha Herbert. She is at Harvard University, where she is a pediatric neurologist and a brain development researcher, and she is the author of The Autism Revolution, Whole Body Strategies for Making Life All It Can Be. The treatments are different. Everyone is not. We don't treat individuals with autism in one specific way, and her book and her website offer just so many resources for parents dealing with this. So I want to make sure that everyone understands the sites that they can go to. AutismRevolution.org is one. 
The other one that is terrific is autismwhyandhow.org. So www.autismwhyandhow.org. Dr. Herbert, thank you so much for being my guest. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. And in closing, I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you again, Dr. Herbert, for your research and for being my guest. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.